almost cost us a lot of money to fight nature and it's far cheaper to work with nature and let it do its thing and you just guide it along and put the tools in place for it to happen and we feel like we're starting to kick some goals with this. So, um, yeah, it's pleasing. The Biological Farming Roundtable podcast helps farmers explore innovative, low-input, regenerative and profitable farming systems. The Biological Farming Roundtable is sponsored by Nutrisoil, an award-winning biological liquid fertiliser made from a big worm farm. Nutrisoil's purpose is to empower farmers to produce life-enriching food. Today's episode is with dairy farmers Andrew and Linda Whiting, who farm 600 acres in Simpson, Victoria, with 800mm annual rainfall. With me is Shelley Schooler, Nutrisoil's new communications extraordinaire. Andrew and Linda Whiting were share farming when they decided to become self-start dairy farmers 18 years ago. They bought a dairy farm which had become run down and in fact had stopped milking. Everything the Whitings had was put into the purchase. Finding themselves in a position with low equity, they just had to put their heads down and worked hard. The Whitings inherited soil with low pH, 4.3 in places, and low potassium areas. Their soils were high in iron, phosphorus was locked up, and there was an abundance of sorrel and fog grass. They were applying 300 units of nitrogen per year and lime followed the cows every eight and sometimes three weeks. While they achieved industry benchmark of one tonne per 100 millimetre rainfall of dry matter, money was going around in circles and they could not get ahead. They were at the top of their field, but there were cracks in the system. This is a story of never giving up, having an open mind, searching for their path, taking one step after the other until their system came together. They now farm with no synthetic inputs and the only herbicides that they use are spot sprays for blackberries and thistles. This is the path of Linda and Andrew Whiting. Hello, today we're here with Andrew and Linda Whiting from their 600-acre dairy farm in Simpson, Victoria. They have an annual rainfall of around 800 millimetres. I also have Shelley Schooler with me, rice farmer, change now communications manager at Nutrisoil. And we are going to have a chat about how the whitings are increasing their soil health and also about the market they're creating for their um, healthy milk. So welcome, guys. Hi. Hi. Thanks for having us. Awesome. I'm just going to kick off with the question. Uh, tell us about your farm. Well, we've been here for 18 years and um, we share farm for about three years before we came here. We're self-starters in the dairy industry, so we were able to get a herd of cows together when everyone, all their friends and that were buying houses. We've managed to scrape into this place. It was uh, 125 hectares originally and it had been shut down as a dairy farm 18 years ago. So it was quite run down and needed a lot of work. So we came in here with very low equity and, and um, we worked and worked and worked and got pretty good at prioritising the things that needed to be done and what order they needed to be done in. So uh, we spent a long time protecting cash flow, I guess. We slowly developed the pastures. We ran the 
a normal conventional approach to farming like everyone else. We attended discussion group days and learned from our industry best practice type stuff. We couldn't afford to do a lot of development in the early days other than we worked on pastures and fertiliser, lime. When we first came here, our soil pH was uh, around about 4.3. We um, had pretty poor pastures, a lot of sorrel, uh, a lot of fog grass, very little clover around. We knew that we we were soil testing every year, so we, we split our farm up into different zones. So we identified the low potassium areas of the farm and we, we worked on um, applying different blends to the different zones, which we had identified as being lacking. We followed this approach for maybe... First four years? Yeah, four or five years. Uh, we did see some really great results, what we thought at the time. We got the farm up to with a pretty aggressive um, cropping program, so turnips, rape, um, pasture, millet, that sort of thing, uh, full cultivations over the summertime and then back into perennial pastures for a permanent base. We got the farm after four or five years to a stage where we were pretty close to achieving industry benchmarks of a, a, um, a tonne of dry matter for every 100 millimetres of rainfall. But we found some limitations with that in that it was costing us an enormous amount of money. So we were growing, consuming a tonne of dry matter, but our, our money was going around in a circle all the time. So we were finding that there was a lot of problems with, you know, you, you would put the fertiliser on. We were using a kilo of N a day for every day of the growing season. So we were using uh, 300 units of N a year, which is back then it was uh, about standard practice. It's probably higher than that now. Um, we were getting a lot of milk. So the, the cows were sort of got the cows up to averaging 10,000 litres a cow. 650 kilos of milk solids we were sort of peaking at pretty massive production pretty high input system buying in hay and all this sort of thing but what we were finding was that we're getting sick cows we're getting a lot of ldas you know left displaced abomasins all that sort of stuff we were having trouble getting cows in calf we weren't happy with the fertility rates we were getting we're having trouble with pastures, cows pulling grass out of the, the ground. So, um, you know, short roots. We'd get to the end of the spring and we'd be running out of moisture and we were finding that although we had grown a lot of feed for the year and we had conserved a lot of feed, we were almost one of the first in the area to dry off and um, the farm would go yellow before most other farms around here. So we were putting a lot of available nutrient on. Um, the pasture couldn't use all that nutrient quick enough, so it was either leaching out and ending up in the waterways or it was being locked up in the soil. We have very high iron content in the soil, so our, uh, a lot of our phosphorus gets locked up uh, very easily. If we didn't put phosphorus on, we were finding we were getting phosphorus deficiency in the in the grass, so the purple tipping on the leaves, um, 
we were tissue testing. We were, we were doing everything that we could, but uh, we didn't have the full spread of information to make informed decisions. So we were probably um, just following best practice, but best practice wasn't best for our farm uh, or our situation. So um, about 2009? Yeah, 2008, we started to yeah question what we were doing. And then 2009, we moved over to a different system. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I went to a talk um, one afternoon, was invited to a day and, and Nick Routson from the Campanown Compost Company was speaking and he was speaking about um, making compost and how it can be used um, as an alternative to help build organic matter in the soil and as a, um, an ameliorant for the soil. I think that's the right word. And um, we knew that we had a lot of waste stream on the farm, on the dairy farm with uh, effluent and all that sort of thing. And I'd been thinking, you know, I have a lot of stuff rolls over in my head at times and I'd been thinking that we weren't utilising these resources and we were treating them as a waste and rather than an, an asset. And so it, it sort of struck a, a core with me in that, um, you know, how could we better utilise those um, waste streams and put them back into the farming system and um, hopefully hold some of those nutrients uh, in the soil a lot easier so that we weren't um, leaching them out into the waterways. So we were basically applying 80 units of, of K a year and if, you know, we got our 800 millimetres of rainfall, we'd, we'd be losing quite a bit of that and having to replace it every year. It had got to the point where um, calcium also, we weren't holding holding calcium, we weren't making much change with our um, pH levels, even though we were applying a lot of lime. Uh, spreaders were coming in, spreading every eight weeks initially and then we got down to six weeks and then we came into three weeks and, and we're having a lot of trouble keeping the, the big spreaders on the sides of the hills because we're getting like a slippery film underneath the grass. The soil, it didn't look like soil. It looked like a, a skin. And so Because it was a hard pan. Yeah, there was a hard pan and, and we, it was almost like we were starting to get moss and that growing between the grass and and you could just tell that the, the soil wasn't breathing, like it was choked. And, and um, you know, when we did get the, the wettest points of the year where the ground was starting to stink and we were getting these alcohol slicks coming out of the, the ground and, and um, real, quite anaerobic uh, conditions. So we knew that we, we had some problems, but um, we weren't the only ones in our area with those problems Um it was just an accepted part of the way you, you, you farmed. And to a large extent, it, it probably still is. But we, we, we kept asking questions, more and more questions, pretty good at asking questions, smart ones and dumb ones, but sort of started this journey of um, learning 10 years ago. And we had the guys from the Campdown Compost Company come in and, and um they started to work with us to understand, help us understand how we could make uh, on-farm compost with our, our waste streams and our resources, what might be required to do that. So initially we, uh, we made um, 
windrow compost. Um, so that's long windrows about two metres wide by about a metre high and um, we would add in um, carbon source, so wood chips, that sort of thing. It was made out of um, solids that came out of our effluent ponds, um, calf shed bedding, all that sort of thing. Any waste streams we could scrape up, track material, any any manure and that that we could find that was reasonably fresh because the um, dairy cows manure, it's, it's um, can lose its energy pretty quickly, so you need to use um, the freshest manure possible to be able to get the heat into your compost. So we began to learn how to do that and we would bring the turners in, um, so a windrow turner and we'd turn the compost. We'd try and make it over six or eight weeks in the driest part of the year, so that would be, you know, January through to March. Uh, it was made quick, so it was a predominantly bacterial compost. One of the things that we were trying to achieve was... Um, we were trying to get some biological activity going in our soil and we were trying to uh, lift the balance between um, bacteria and fungi, try to get it towards more of a 50-50 ratio. We knew that we had um, fungal spores there in the soil. We were starting to do some biological testing. Uh, the Camperdown Compost Company brought out Elaine Ingham from the Rodale Institute around that time. She gave a talk in the, the district and we were lucky enough to have her visit our farm. So we were able to ask her lots and lots and lots of questions. So we, we did get the farm to a point where we were going pretty well with compost. and um, The lime addition to compost too was a, a um, something that she taught us about. So we were able to change our... Um, soil pH significantly after that. Yeah, so she, Elaine um, told us to put um, no more than 10% of our um, total amount of compost um, as lime in the last turn and we started to do that and um, we turned our soil pH issues around really, really quickly within 18 months. So for very little cost yeah. to what we've been spending. So that was one simple change that we were able to make and, and um, we had aluminium levels of, you know, 3 to 4% and they disappeared overnight pretty much and our soil pH started to move more towards a, a neutral point. So you were putting in no more than 10% of calcium in your compost mix, is that right? Yeah, yeah. And on the last turn of the compost, so the compost would be just starting to slow down temperature-wise, I guess, and um, you would hope that the fungi and that was starting to move into the compost and, and um, would start to work on the, the lime and make it more available. So um, Elaine was a, a wealth of knowledge for us, um, she told us we were about 50% of the way there, but one point that she missed out was um, how to get the other 50%. And we've probably spent the last... Um, 10 years. 10 years trying to work out how to do that. I think we're getting a little further along now than we were 10 years ago, but we probably... We floundered along for five or six years growing about, you know, five or six tonne of dry matter 
We were still buying in lots of feed and that sort of thing. We wanted to get our nitrogen inputs down, but that was a, a, a limitation that I found with a compost system is that, you know, although we had clover and that in the system, it, it wasn't fully replacing our nitrogen requirements. So it, it was aggressive enough in the springtime, but at the times of the year when we needed it to be aggressive, it just couldn't supply enough nitrogen to grow enough feed. So we still had uh, nitrogen going in there, albeit with a, a, a carbon, so a humate buffer. So we, we've always added sort of 5% humates to any nitrogen inputs, whether they be granulated or uh, liquid. We did move over to a liquid nitrogen um, pretty early on, so an EZM type product, and we used to spray a lot of liquid sprays following the cows, mixing up um, compost extracts, not our own, they were brought in compost extracts, humates, fulvic acid, fish emulsion and easy end. So we're applying about 11 or 12 units of, of nitrogen each round and we, we did find that that helped a lot. We, we were managing to grow quite a bit of feed using that sort of a process. Um, we weren't spraying that mix out every application. It would be probably twice a year we would mix that up. But I did find it was an enormous amount of work and quite um, time-consuming to, to do that. And um, we've always been pretty time poor on our dairy farm, as most people could imagine. So was it about... Ooh, 2011, we went up and we, we did a um, certificate in sustainable agriculture with Graham Sait. Um, Linda and I, we both went up, I think it was a year or two apart, only because we couldn't spare the time to go both together. But we we've, we've both did that and, and we learned an enormous amount, um, almost too much. We couldn't take it all in. That's probably a, was a big problem initially there was so much information out there that we we simply uh, weren't ready for it we were trying to get our head heads around how to do this we knew where we wanted to go but we didn't know how to get there there's lots of people we were talking to everyone has something to sell everyone has a product that's going to solve all your problems and we were quite confused for a long time I think and it took us a while to really sort of start to see through the fog and find some sort of direction. I, I still remember some really simple points that Elaine made to me, uh, and, and that was that this didn't need to be complicated. The whole process um, could be quite simple. We needed diversity in the system, as much diversity as possible. Uh, we needed that humic and fulvic in the system. We needed to keep feeding our biology all the time. So we wanted to refine what we were doing a little bit to cut down the workload of mixing up sprays and having a contractor coming in and spraying it. And it wasn't easy to do because it was blocking up filters in sprayers and I wasn't happy and the contractor wasn't happy, basically. So um, uh, around five years ago, I decided to um, join the Vic No-Till Association just to 
because I couldn't find much information about the direction we were heading within the dairy industry and I, I wanted to sort of find out what other people were doing. The, the cropping guys were starting to do a fair bit in the regenerative space, so I, I wanted to sort of um, grab hold of their coattails and see how they were going and what they were doing and, and um, see if we could learn some more and bring it back to the dairy industry and see what we could apply. I went to the Vic No-Till conference, so we probably five or six of those I've been to now, um, listened to quite a few speakers. Um, we've brought out some really good speakers from all over the world. It was all about um, diversity, all the stuff I wanted to hear. Uh, some of the stuff around the no-tilling was really quite difficult for us to apply in a high rainfall zone, so we couldn't um, use a complete no-till system here because uh, with a high stocking rate of two and a half, three cows to the hectare, you're always going to have pugging and, you know, without doing some sort of a cultivation, you couldn't get an even seed bed for a... Um, a drill to go through and get a good result. The Vic No-Till were talking about cover crops. It was the first I'd really been exposed to it. Started to Google stuff, um, used up a bit of data on YouTube, which <laughs> and my wife's always going cook at me about. And um, but started to get some ideas of, of um, what we needed to do. And, you know, so I started to explore the options of... Um, growing cover crops in a pasture-based system and we were fortunate with our uh, we've got some really good contractors in this area and they've got multitude of different machines and I think I used most of those machines to try different approaches to to do this and get these cover crops established and uh, whether that be with power harrows, disc seeders, tine seeders, Roundup, different rates of Roundup. We tried full cultivation, uh, minimal cultivation. Um, we settled on uh, a Vodastad type drill with the speed discs on the front or a horse drill. I think they ended up with in the end. I started to buy my different seeds, started off with simple mixes of, um, I used AGF Summer Max for a start and added some extra things like um, chicory, plantain, clover, lucerne, that sort of thing into the mix. We got some really good results with full cultivation in springtime. We got some quite good results with um, winter mixes too with um, peas and cereals and that sort of thing over the top of pasture. And... Um, I thought we were heading in the, the right direction pretty well. Uh, we were starting to also phase out our nitrogen applications. So we got down to sort of one or two nitrogen applications a year in the coldest part of the, the year. They weren't big applications. We were still running a carbon source with the nitrogen. We also moved away from using the fish emulsion because it was really difficult for us to use and get through a, a, a contractor sprayer. It was hard to mix up. It stank. No one wanted to do it. I didn't want to do it. It took a long time to do it. Uh, so going to the Vic No-Till conference, I came across Nutrisoil and their products and 
a little thing that I'd remembered from the Graham site um, course was that, you know, worm juice was one of the most powerful forms of um, humic and fulvic that you can get. It's, it's a balanced product, you know, it's, it's there in the soil. It's got everything that a plant needs. Thought it was a pretty good fit for what we were doing. So I just swapped out the compost extract and the, um, the fish emulsion and in went the Nutrisoil. And we've used that for maybe three years now, I think. And to pretty good effect, along with the nitrogen still in there at times. Um, and compost, we were still making compost every year and applying that. Um, and using our effluent, second pond effluent sources. So we have a, a, a five pond effluent settling system. So we have a, a feed pad here, big concrete feed pad. Um, it's flood washed. It flood washes into um, solids traps. Uh, we remove those solids once or twice a year and we make the compost out of that and the water reticulates around through settling ponds and into the fifth pond. It is reasonably clean and, and we're able to use that for washing yards and, and flood washing the feed pad, all that sort of thing. Do we empty them? Yeah, we empty those once twice. or twice a year. Um, so we apply those with a, an umbilical hose. So it's a about a 1.2 kilometre hose. And on the end of that hose, one end is a pretty big pump. On the other end is a, a about a six metre dribble bar and um, the contractor comes in and we apply that uh, over the pasture behind the cows and I find that works pretty well. We're able to, we have a bit of steep ground here and we're able to cover 80% of the farm with that. We try not to apply too much at any one time because um, we don't want runoff and if you apply too much, um, you start to see the worms dead on top of the surface. So it's almost like we've flooded them or made their environment anaerobic or uh, I guess we're opening ourselves up to a bacterial bloom too if we get too much effluent there. So you expose yourself to a lot of weed if you apply too much um, undiluted effluent. So that's been our experience. So we prefer to take most of the solids out or a lot of the solids out and compost those, put attach them to a carbon source. Um, we have the ability to take those solids further away from the, the milking area and apply those to fodder areas of the farm that we would generally lock up uh, for silage, that sort of thing, and bring back to the feed pad and the, the milking area. So uh, with our soil tests in the past, we've been able to manage our nutrients, I think, pretty reasonably, identify the areas that need to be, to be managed. We've done nutrient budgets every year for the last 10 or 15 years, so we know what's coming onto the farm, what's going out in milk, and then we can match our nutrient requirements accordingly. Um, I think... Last oh, 18 months ago, the HP Landcare group were running a bus trip. They advertised a bus trip down to the, the Olsons farm down at um, the Soil Key guys down in Gippsland at, 
at Hellera. Um, Linda thought I should go. Might be a, a, a good day out and could learn something. And um, I'm quite pleased that she pushed me in that path to get on that bus because I went on the bus down there that day and I think within about 15 or 20 minutes of being there, I, I was able to answer a lot of questions that I still had just by looking and, and um, seeing and smelling and touching and, and um, see what was going on. It answered a few questions that I had within our system, things that we were lacking, um, the nitrogen component, where was their nitrogen coming from? Um, we already had peas and no vetch, but peas in the, the system over the winter. So we had uh, maybe six or seven different varieties going in as a cover crop over the winter time. Um, our peas were nodulating. Our clovers were nodulating too. But I was finding that um, once we had grazed, grazed those paddocks off, we were, weren't getting um, enough carryover nitrogen carrying through to keep us going. So we'd get a bit of a lull after that. So I couldn't, wasn't completely getting off the nitrogen bandwagon. Um, the soil key system answered that question for me in that we were able to develop a system of, of getting those um, cover crop seeds into the perennial pasture without the competition choking them out and without having to use, you know, any Roundup or any really heavy cultivation. Um, there was an aeration effect in the pasture. It was stimulating the biology to start creating some nitrogen inputs into the system just out of the biology. Um, the peas and the vetch, the much more diverse um, seed mix was um, able to give me a more consistent flow of nitrogen throughout the growing season. So we first started the soil key um, May last year. It was our first time we used it. From May to November the 10th, we, we initially um, sowed 28 hectares for a start. I estimated we grew about um, six tonne in that period and without any inputs at all, no nitrogen, no, no anything, no compost, didn't put anything on, on that area, just wanted to see what was, uh, what was possible. Um, and we had to make some changes um, as far as grazing management went as well so um, shifting to a longer rotation so out to 60 days plus to suit the peas so we needed to be having our first grazing of, of our cover crops um, as the peas were going into flower so that they would dump their nitrogen back into the soil and not put them into a, a pod um, my experience was that that's exactly what happened and that the vetch then was established enough to carry on with the nitrogen inputs into the perennial pasture along with the nitrogen that had been dumped into the soil from the peas. So I was starting to get that whole um, nitrogen flow that, that we needed to drive the system to be able to feed the cows and um, we were starting to get, I could see that we could get a... Um, 
pattern going. And if we continued with this, that this would just be, a, I suppose, not an evolution, but a, a, um, I would, I'd get a rotation of, of um, this system going. And I needed to be sowing not right behind the cows, but within, you know, one or two weeks of the cows eating paddocks off. So we, I took Linda back over to the Olsons oh, about six weeks after I initially went over and we had another look and another talk and uh, about it. And um, we came home and we decided to purchase a soil key machine the next day. And so we rang Niels and, and ordered our machine. Um, we haven't got it yet. There's been a pretty pretty large demand for soil key machines, but um, uh, we've been very lucky that they've been able to keep us going and fill the void with um, them coming across and doing some contracting for us. So we've been really lucky in that regard as we've been able to start to implement the soil key system without having our own machine initially. So... Going forward, we we need to purchase another tractor to uh, to drive it, and um, we want to run a mulcher on the front of the the tractor so that we can uh, mulch any um, any residue that's left behind from the cows back in underneath the the soil key system. So any chicory stalks, anything like that, chicory plantain, um, any weeds too. A couple of things that we found in the last 12 months with that system was that um, I was a little bit worried about weeds opening the pasture up like that. You're cultivating about 17% of the, the worked area. Um, the soil that comes out of the key line is distributed across the perennial pasture. So you leave about 400 millimetres of um, perennial pasture in strips and the soil that comes out of the key line is, is distributed across the, the top of the perennial pasture and the, then the perennial pasture will grow through that. So you're almost inoculating that pasture with soil that you've taken out of the, the ground. So I was a little concerned about, you know, whether we were going to open ourselves up to weeds initially because we'd sort of had a pretty pretty good weed-free run for a long time. Um we're not organic and, and um, we have made the decision probably that we don't need to go that way. Um, we want to be able to produce healthy food and operate within a conventional farming system but look after our soil and, and, and um, our cows and ourselves as well and not have to rely on a premium market to do that. So I always felt that if this was going to stack up, it had to stack up in a, in a um, conventional environment. So, and I think it can absolutely do that. That's, wow. that's where we're at. That's, I guess, our, our journey thus far. <laughs> it's been quite a progression, hasn't it? So what happened is you're in the conventional system and stress was probably pretty high. Um, you felt like you weren't actually going forward. You were just sort of going around in a circle. But then your progression sort of went compost, perennial pastures, um, making your own extract, humix and forbix, going to something simpler that did that, which was the worm liquid, and reducing your nitrogen, 
the soil key and putting annual multi-species into your perennial multi-species pastures. Would you say that's a bit of the progression of how it happens? Yeah, absolutely. I think I realised about six or 12 months ago that um, compost, it absolutely has its place on a dairy farm because you have those waste streams available. But with freight charges and, and all that sort of thing, it, it's not worth making compost by buying in waste streams at all. Um, it's expensive to do that. And I don't think that the compost is the most efficient way of putting carbon into the soil. I think that plants are far more efficient way of doing that. So that's something that I've come to realise probably in the last 12 months, absolutely. Tell us about the changes you've seen um, in carbon levels in your soil. Before we started composting, we, uh, I suppose, we, we had pretty average total organic matter or carbon, total organic carbon of about 4 4.5% in the top 100 millimetres of soil. So that's probably pretty standard for a dairy farm. Um, some will be higher, some will be lower. We have seen over the last 10 years with our compost system and, and all the biological things we've been doing to enhance that, that um, regenerative approach of the soil. We, we took some core samples down to a metre 12 months ago and, and we had 5% um, total organic carbon in the top 400 millimetres. So, yeah. you know, it's quite possible that we've got 7 or 8% in the top 100 yeah. millimetres and, you know, maybe 2% in the bottom 100 millimetres. Uh, I think that was a pretty big change. We saw um, plant roots absolutely down to 400 millimetres and down as far as a metre, but we weren't able to tell whether they were desirable. Uh, <laughs> um, they might have been docks, dock roots or something like that. I mean, they could have been chicory, they could have been loose. But either way, wouldn't those roots, even if they're penetrating lower, they would help cycle the nutrients and cycle that bacteria to have that communication with the plants um, that are the roots rather that are higher up in the profile. That's still a benefit, I would say. Absolutely. We want all our plants working together and feeding a total system. Yes. So that's yeah. what we're after. So the other changes we've noticed is that our farm greens up a lot quicker once we've had our autumn rain and, of course, at the other end of the season, it hangs on a bit longer. So there's sort of some other changes we've noticed as well. And that you would put down, obviously, to the increased carbon, the soil's able to hold on to that moisture longer? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yep. What about your nitrogen use now? What, what would you be using now? So under the soil key system, there'll be zero zero nitrogen so um, the last 12 the last 12 months with um, the soil key system there's been zero additional um, nitrogen going into the system so which to me is pretty pleasing because I know that we can we, we can do this and yeah. we can can do this in a, a conventional system yeah. or, or under a conventional milk price um, we, this this will stack up for us 
no matter what happens, I think. It, it puts a lot of resilience into our business too, I think. Um, so with wet years, dry years, um, high milk price, low milk price, I think that's a pleasing thing for us. It takes a lot of risk out of the out of our farming and it certainly makes our farming much more enjoyable. We, we absolutely love what we do and we love seeing our farm um, move forward and go ahead and, and build. So that's been a really pleasing thing. We, we visited you in late April and I can tell everyone that's listening, absolutely 100%, you can tell that the um, Whitings enjoy what they do and that's just a pleasure to be able to come and see someone just so passionate and really a great big smile on their face even when they're milking cows is a pleasure to see. So congratulations to you guys. Well, I just want to say 300 units of nitrogen down to no nitrogen per year. You're not organic, but you find this system more profitable? More profitable than organic? No, than not your organic. conventional system. Oh, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. I think what Nicola is alluding to is that you don't have to be organic to have a more profitable system. That's, I think, the question. Yep. Yeah, definitely. We, um, we're still getting paid the same as what, you know, anyone else who um, isn't organic is and, and we're running the pasture as if it's organic. Um, the only reason that we're not organic is that we like to make sure our cows are healthy and, and um, yeah, probably it's, it's, it's hard to get away from the antibiotic use, although we've reduced it a lot from 12 years ago. Um, the cow health has improved heaps over the time with um, less mastitis, better fertility rates, um, nitrogen. Once we took the nitrogen out of the system, we had a lot of cows um, that, that weren't aborting pregnancies in those early stages. It's sort of like the nitrogen, high nitrogen use tends to, um, yeah, promote that a bit. I'm not sure why, but um, and yeah, our cows, once they're pregnant, they stay pregnant. So, um, and other health issues, uh, we've taken the minerals out of the feed. We don't feed minerals to the cows in the grain anymore. They're just uh, getting, you know, what they need from the pasture. Yeah, so the micro minerals are out. That We still have some macros in there, like your, your lime and that sort of thing. Look, we can see there's a lot of savings with the direction we're heading everywhere in this. Um, the protein in our um, concentrate mix is probably the most expensive part of a, a dairy concentrate mix. There's a lot of legumes in this um, cover cropping system. I can absolutely see that we'll be reducing, if not taking out completely, our protein out of our concentrates. I can see our concentrates coming back heaps. I can see our... Uh, fodder conservation being reduced so we'll be direct grazing a lot more for a lot more of time in the year so our seasons will be extended even in a dry year if we can extend that growing season by four to six weeks well you know there's three to four hundred uh, round rolls of silage less that we've got to feed the cows and and um, we know that that's a significant saving just in time to feed it 
but also in, in cost to produce it. So let's break this down. Where Where is this nitrogen now coming from? Well, it's coming from the atmosphere, I guess. So we know that the atmosphere is uh, 78% nitrogen. Um, we're able to capture that a lot better through the, I guess, smart use of legumes um, and aggressive legumes too. So um, clover absolutely has a place along with every other plant that we plant. I think there's 21 species in the mix that goes in. Um, they all have a role. They all work together. Um, but I can see how those aggressive legumes like the peas and the vetch are driving the system and, and driving the soil biology. Um, absolutely. I think uh, the root systems that you have, like the increase in depth of root system, what we don't realise is that organic matter turns into organic nitrogen and we actually don't see that on the system as ammonium or nitrate. It's, it's organic nitrogen that's coming just through building root systems as well. Yeah, well, there's, there's, there's a lot going on under there, um, uh, which is good. Uh, and, and it's to be honest, it, it's happening by itself. We're not having to worry about that. I think in the past, we talk about what we were doing 10 years ago, it was very stressful because timing was absolutely everything. Like if, if, if we missed an event, you'd be, um, you'd be kicking yourself because you knew, knew that it was lost opportunity. So where we're at now and the direction we're heading, I think that the sewing window, there's a lot more flexibility in what we're doing and a lot less risk which I really like about that. It puts a lot of enjoyment into our farming. I'd like to dig deep a bit here. Linda, your marriage before in the high stress, um, you know, times where money was going around in a circle, you weren't going forward compared to now. Is there anything different that you would see in your relationship with Andrew now? Um. Oh, we're pretty, we're pretty lucky. We've always had a pretty good relationship, but it's certainly... Um, um, yeah, it's not a, it's not as stressful. Like you, you don't feel under pressure. Um, and in the Graham State courts, he um, sort of talked about the, you know, that Sunday soil farming system where it's too wet on Saturday and too dry on Monday. You know, so it, it's sort of that that pressure's all gone. You know, it um, yeah, it doesn't matter if it's not done today because it's always tomorrow. You know, and it sort of yeah, it makes it just easier. When you were um, doing your nutrient plans on the farm and you're always finding that there was something that you needed to keep addressing, is that still the case or are you finding um, that you don't need to be uh, micromanaging the farm as much? You absolutely don't need to micromanage the, the farm as much. We, we've done totals tests. Um, we know that um, our total pool of nutrient is it's almost like having a, a savings account at the bank. So, you know, you, you're depositing all the time and you're withdrawing all the time, but that's going on in the background and, and you know, I don't have to manage that. It's, it's just happening on its own. I, I can liken it to a good manager, you know. So um, if, if you can um, empower your own staff to do things, if you can, um, you know, not micromanage and let the whole team work together. You know, you've got your team, you've got your plants, you've got your uh, microbes, you've got your cattle. 
and you've got your family and you, you're you're letting it all be holistic and you're not addressing the deficiencies each time. Um, I just I just liken your farming style to a good manager. I think initially we tried to micromanage it and you end up chasing your tail. So um, I've said a number of times over the years that it, it's, it's almost cost us a lot of money to fight nature and it's far cheaper to work with nature and, and let it do its thing and you just guide it along and put the tools in, in place for it to happen and we're constantly learning. Like there's, there's just so much to learn out there and I'm sure that we feel like we're starting to kick some goals with this. So, um, yeah, it's pleasing. I'd like to talk about uh, the greener pastures movement that you have. It's really about not being afraid to have a go first. You've got these four farmers uh, that got together, and I'm going to repeat your jingle that you've got on your website, four farmers who made a pact, four farmers having a crack. Tell us about how that all happened. I guess us four farmers were um, all dabbling in the, the compost and trying to sort of um, learn a bit more about the regenerative ag. And we sort of all got together with a few other outside parties who had an interest in it, like some compost people and some marketing people. And um, we just sort of sat down and nutted out, you know, how we could um, best sort of tell people about the way we're farming and, and if we could use it and whether there was a market there for a milk you know, to um, market our milk in a different way. Yeah, and we sort of come up with a plan that was about eight years ago, seven or eight years ago, and started Green Pastures. So we started a milk brand and we were lucky enough to um, pitch to Coles and they said yes, and, and then it was a bit of a scramble to um, get some milk in bottles so we could sell it. We kind of knew that we... we probably sat in between in between organic and, and like conventional milk but we didn't quite know how big that market was so I suppose it's been a, a bit of an exploring of um, how much interest there was there in what we were doing and, and whether people cared about what we were doing with the soil and, and how that was yeah so do you have any involvement in the business side of it not really, um, a little bit in the background and, and um, initially we sort of done a bit of marketing sort of stuff in store. But, um, yeah, we've got other people who look after that side of us for us and we just make sure we make a good product to go in the bottles. And does all of your milk go there? Um, no, I'm, I'm not exactly sure what percentage, um, but it goes to the... Um, bottling factory and they bottle their milk and, and they use the what's left in their own uh, products and things. So, yeah, and that's Saputo. We've never wanted to um, to own stainless steel factories, that sort of thing. We, we've always wanted to keep it a really simple process and low risk. So um, it's a pretty good fit for us to have the milk contract packed and, and the surplus go into their products. Andrew and Linda, it was just so lovely to for you to host the BFR, the Biological Farming Roundtable, at your place in late April. Uh, we had David Hardwick, the agroecologist, with us. What did you guys take home from his presentation about soil health? Were there some extra key messages there that you, you got from that? Oh, absolutely. It, it was great. I, I learnt that I've done it all wrong. <laughs> 
<laughs> I went about it in completely the wrong order. <laughs> so, um, you know, David talked about uh, working on your soil constraints and, um, you know, soil fertility is almost the last thing that you need to address and um, that was probably the big take-home message for me and I guess it was pleasing to know that what we're doing with the soil key system is exactly the right way for us to approach that. So, um, and we're starting to see some pretty good results out of doing that too, so which is good. It's pleasing. Yeah, no, he, he was fantastic. And, he's, yeah, you, you're right. The fertility will take care of itself. If you address soil type and the structure, then the fertility will come. But, look, you got to where you wanted to be. You might have went the long way about it, but um, you, you certainly streets ahead and, um, you know, it's good to know that we've got people like David out there helping spread the word. There's actually, I will um, give this a bit of a plug now. There's a Regen Dairy Farming Forum. Um, David is organising it. He's done this for Kane as well, and I've been in, involved in the Kane Regen Farming Forums, and they've been really successful, maybe in their third year now. And he's doing one for dairy. So this is the inaugural one this year, and it's on the 6th and 7th of July in Warrigal. And I think one of the topics is, where do I get my nitrogen, you know, or can I farm without nitrogen? And I just think your farming system is just classic of what people are going to learn at this forum in Warrigal. So get along, and if you can't get along over next year, it's going to keep going. David is passionate about helping people learn how to reduce their inputs, increase their soil health, increase the health of their cattle, and generally the happiness of their farming system and their farming family. So, um, guys, we might finish up today. I just want to say a big thank you to both of you. We loved being at your property when we came there last month for the Biological Farming Roundtable. It was beautiful. It was um, it blew me away. I don't know if I've seen such a well-run dairy farm that has reduced, taken nitrogen out of the system. The weed burden was so low, not using herbicides, just some spot and, um, spraying needed for blackberries, I think you said. Yeah, an absolute joy to be there. Thank you for sharing your story. I hope that it helps others on their journey. Shelley, thanks for being here with me. You're welcome. And um, we'll talk again. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much. Thank you. Please follow the Biological Farming Roundtable podcast. Share it with your friends and networks. I'm Nicola Maddick and I work at Nutrisoil a liquid biological fertiliser made from a big worm farm whose purpose is to empower farmers to produce life-enriching food.